Bible Biogs in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, one character at a time. Author, pastor and Bible teacher Mike Beaumont is in conversation with David Taverner. This episode is a little bit different, Mike, because we're not just focusing on on one Bible character, but uh, a family, really, uh, Herod the Great and and some of his sons and descendants. So Herod the Great, let's just start with Herod the Great. First of all, where does that title come from? Because it sounds somewhat presumptuous. Well, he was a very presumptuous man. Uh, He he was a complete nutcase, really, uh, (laughs) who had got very grand designs upon who he was and what he could do. So he had this sort of uh, self-imposed name. Uh, Very modest, really, isn't it? But um, Herod the Great, yes, indeed. Uh, But uh, who who was he? What's his background? Well, his background helps explain why he was hated so much because it's clear when we get into the New Testament story that Herod and his sons and grandsons, because, as you've said, different Herods appear at different points in the New Testament story, um, they generally weren't liked at all, and certainly uh, Herod the Great wasn't. So why was he so disliked? Well, he was disliked because he was not really a true Jew in the eyes of most Jews. Mm-hmm. He was what we call an Idumean. Now, that's the New Testament equivalent of the Old Testament word Edom. Oh, yeah. You remember that uh, Edom was that territory to the south-southeast of the Dead Sea. They had opposed Israel when they had wanted to pass through, and even though they were descendants from the same family roots, Edom, Esau. So there were family connections, but Edom had refused to allow the Israelites to pass through their territory on their way to the promised land when they'd left slavery in Egypt at the end of that 40-year wilderness wandering. And so they'd had to pass around them. And ever since that time, they weren't enemies, but there was constant hostility and friction between the Edomites and between the Israelites between the two of them. Something of a family squabble, to say the least. Yeah, it was a sort of, you know, for people who watch things like EastEnders, it was probably the equivalent of those sort of family feuds that, that go on there. Now, so there's this background of, of long-standing hostility. But after Babylon had conquered Jerusalem in 586 B.C., Many of the Edomites had taken the opportunity to migrate from Edom to southern Judah. And they had settled there, and then even more followed them when Edom itself was conquered by another people called the Nabataeans in the third century BC. So you've got to imagine this like southern area of Judah that's been taken over by these. Edomites who become known as Idumeans. So there they are within Judea, but they're not really Jews. Yeah, they're family way, way back, but they are definitely not true Jews. 
And so these Idumeans were never really recognized as true Jews. So when Herod the Great manages to persuade Rome to appoint him as their client king, the king to govern on their behalf, he's hated by most Jews. Why? Because he's not a true Jew. Now, he could argue, of course I'm a Jew. I come from Idumea. I come from the south of Judea. And they would say, no, you're not. Look at your history. Mm. Clearly, you're just an immigrant. And just as immigrants can be looked down upon so often today, so were they. So they weren't seen as true Jews. And that's why Herod was hated so much by those who saw themselves as true Jews. He was really an imposter, a half-Jew at best, imposed upon them by Rome, who had conquered Judea and Jerusalem in 63 BC. And ever since that time, Judea had been part of the Roman Empire. And King Herod, there was a whole host of backstory, but he eventually managed to persuade Rome to put him in as king uh, in 37 BC. And he reigned from 37 BC till around about 4 BC. Now that must mean then that this is the same King Herod that was around when Jesus was born. Exactly. But hang on, let's just sort out something here. 4 BC, you said his reign ended. Ah, yes. Somebody got the calendar wrong when they were working things out. Because if Jesus was born... Scholars tend to think round about 3, 4 BC. Okay. But it's not that he was born before he was born. It's simply when the calendar was organized, someone got the date slightly wrong. So it's normally seen that Jesus is born round about 4 BC, which puts him just towards the very end of the reign of Herod the Great. You said earlier that he was quite a character, quite uh, a believer in himself might be one way of putting it. Uh, in, in terms of what he created, what he what he built, what, 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 what do we have? What evidence do we have? Oh, there's loads of stuff that he did and much of which still remains. You see, he wanted to be seen as a great king. And actually, he was so insecure that he wanted to win people over. So one of the big things he does is he rebuilds the temple. Now, remember, the temple had been rebuilt when Israel, the Israelites had come back from exile, um, but it had never been glorious in the way that Solomon's temple had been. So he thought one of the things he could do is to rebuild the temple. And so he expands it enormously and fills valleys and does this huge platform area to make that temple area, much of which is still there standing today, and so he invests all this money in rebuilding the temple to win over the hearts of the Jews. But of course, for true Jews, they just think it's not a real temple. Why, why should a, a non-Jew be allowed to rebuild our temple? So the very thing he did to try and win them over was the very thing that alienated them. They just thought this temple was defiled. But besides the temple, there were a whole host of other things. He, he built theatres and amphitheatres and monuments and fortresses, some of which the ruins still remain uh, today. Of course, all that needed paying for, didn't it? Mm. And where did the money come from? Yes, it came from where it always comes from, taxes. So here's yet another reason for them to hate them. Oh, and by the way, he conscripted labour 
for much of these projects. So Israel had known what it was to be slaves way back in its history and God had freed them. And here's now this supposed king of the Jews who's now putting them back into slavery. So it was like everything he did on this grand scale really just turned against him. Just south of Bethlehem, there's something called the Herodian. Uh, is that linked to King Herod the Great? Yes, it is. It's named after him. Modest again, isn't it? The Herodion, the fortress palace that he built uh, south of Jerusalem. In fact, he built a whole number of palaces south from Jerusalem. And what they were there for, they were his escape route. So that if ever the people turned against him and revolted, he would be able to make his way south, going from one of his fortresses to the other. Two of the perhaps best known today are the Herodian and Masada by the Dead Sea. And, and these were incredible fortresses. I mean, the archaeological discoveries that they've unearthed already today, because you can go to both these places and walk up the hills and see them. In the case of Masadi, you can walk up it, but it's actually easier to take the cable car these days because it's so high up. Um, so these were incredible places, but they were also a reflection of his paranoia. This really was a guy who was lived in fear, who was imbalanced. He was he was certainly paranoid about the possibility of usurpers. Um, I mean, this gives an idea of what this guy was like. He he murdered his wife, three of his sons, his mother-in-law, his brother-in-law, his uncle, and a whole host of others. Goodness. So that he removed any possibility of of threat to he was, his throne. He was looking over his shoulder all the time, constantly. So we've got a guy who is immensely powerful, backed up by Rome. Remember, he rules on Rome's behalf, so the might of Rome behind him. But an incredibly insecure man, paranoid man, worried that people might be out to depose him, trying to do good things to win people's love and affection, and yet everything that he did just seemed to turn them against him even more. And as you say, he is the king who is there at the the birth stories of Jesus. So we find in, in Matthew chapter 2, do you remember when the Magi come mm. uh, and want to know where is the one who's born to be the king of the Jews? And they go to who? To King Herod. And it's this King Herod. And of course, the thought that there could be a rival king because he, he was the king of the Jews as far as he was concerned. He was the king of the Jews. What's all this talk about another king of the Jews? But, you know, the Jews' own scriptures spoke about a king of the Jews coming who would one day be their Messiah. And so he talks with these wise men and says, well, you know, you go and look for him. And when, when, you, when you find him, come and tell me. And, of course, there was only one reason he wanted him. He wanted to get rid of him. And then when the... The wise men are warned by an angel from God not to go back to Herod once they have seen Jesus and worshipped him. Um, Herod is absolutely furious, and he still is determined to remove any threat to his throne. And so we read in Matthew chapter 2 that Herod was furious when he realized the wise men had outwitted him. And he sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under, based on the wise men's report of the star's first appearance. I mean, what a guy this is. It sounds like a despot. 
He's a despot and he's a deranged despot. He is fearful of his position, even to the point where he would wipe out every baby boy in the region around Bethlehem under the age of two. Why two? Well, he's just making sure. You know, it's not any baby boy under the age of one month or three months. Let's make it two years. Let's give ourselves a good margin for error here. Um, So this is Herod the Great, the, the founder of this family, powerful, Rome behind him, somewhat deranged, despotic, erratic, and yet desperate for people's love and affection. Interesting, isn't it? That's how despots always turn out, (laughs) appearing strong and powerful, yet underneath desperate for the love and affection of of people. And think of some of the despots around the world today, those who rule with solitary power. And what do they long for more than anything else? Those great parades where the people shout and cheer to them and say, what a great ruler and leader you are. Now, that is exactly the sort of picture that we get of Herod the Great. And if that is possible within the life of a human being, it's into that world that Jesus is born. Yes, it's interesting, isn't it, how Jesus comes into a world of of turmoil, into a world that knows pain, into a world that knows despotic rulers like this. You know, he, he could have chosen a luxurious palace in a far more pleasant and wonderful time but it's into this world of turmoil he comes because this is the moment that God has been planning for. This is the moment when his son's going to come. This is the moment when the king of kings is going to come and be born under this sort of king. What what happened when Herod the Great died? Well, Rome decides it doesn't want to appoint one sole ruler as it had done with Herod the Great. So it divides up his empire into uh, different areas ruled by four of Herod's sons, Archelaus, Antipas, Philip I, and one that's not mentioned in the Bible, Aristobulus. But Aristobulus's son, Agrippa I, and his son, Agrippa II, do come into the New Testament story later. So maybe we just need to work through those one by one. Sure, yes. Uh, Archelaus. Archelaus was appointed as governor of Judea, Idumea, and Samaria. That's sort of the, the central block, the area around Jerusalem, Samaria, to the north of that Galilee, to the west of the Dead Sea. And he rules that from around 4 BC to 6 AD. So that puts him into the frame for when Jesus's family returns from Egypt that we read about at the end of of Matthew chapter 2. Ah, yes. So Joseph and Mary, with their new son, Jesus, has been warned to head to uh, Egypt to escape Herod the Great, presumably. Yes, that's right. And for a little while, Egypt will serve as a place of refuge, just as it did at times in the Old Testament. Remember, how did the Israelites end up in Egypt? They went there as a place of refuge, to avoid famine. And and so that will happen again. But eventually God speaks to them and says, it's time to go back home. But we read at the end of Matthew 2 that Joseph got up and returned to the land of Israel with Jesus and his mother. But when he learned that the new ruler of Judea was Herod's son, Archelaus, he was afraid to go there. 
Then, after being warned in a dream, he left for the region of Galilee. So the family went and lived in the town called Nazareth. So, now, so, so it sounds like there's a situation like father, like son, that Archelaus had as bad a reputation as his father. Yes, absolutely. And therefore, that's why Joseph does not want to go there at all, but, but heads north. And in fact, Archelaus doesn't last uh, very long, as I said, 4 BC to 6 AD. So what, we've got about 10 years there. And he's replaced by a Roman governor, a Roman procurator, to give him his proper title, who definitely comes into the New Testament story, and that guy's Pilate. But we'll just have to part Pilate for a moment. But he replaces Archelaus. Rome decides it doesn't want another king there. It wants direct rule itself and Pilate is sent in to do that. So Joseph and Mary, just to get us uh, into the Christmas story again briefly, uh, have sort of avoided going through the territory that Archelaus, the son of Herod the Great, had responsibility for and have ended up in, in Nazareth. And that's yes. where Jesus, Jesus grows up. That's right. Archelaus doesn't last very long. Yep. Uh, one of the other sons of Herod the Great is Herod Antipas. Yeah. Now, he is appointed as... Tetrarch of Galilee and Perea. Now, Perea is an region, a region to the east of the River Jordan. So it's, it's a strip of land that runs down the River Jordan uh, pretty much towards from Sea of Galilee down to Dead Sea in, in rough terms. But, but Galilee is the real one that, that we need to focus on. So he's the one who's the ruler in that area where Jesus is going to grow up. And he rules for much longer, from 4 BC to 39 AD. So he's the Herod who's in the background uh, throughout Jesus's ministry. And uh, he's a bit of a mixed character. I mean, we're going to see he's definitely uh, very anti some of the message. But one of the things he does during his reign is that he builds up a, a new capital, a, a place called Sepphoris that isn't mentioned in the New Testament, but we have referred to in mm. previous episodes. And so this village is now established as his new capital around 4 BC. And uh, there was lots of building work going on. It's quite likely that Joseph and Jesus as carpenters, or as we've said previously, as the builders, the small-time builders, uh, may well have been involved. It would have taken about an hour to walk from Nazareth to Sepphoris. And, and that remains his capital until eventually he builds Tiberius on the Sea of Galilee. And that becomes his capital in 19 AD. You mentioned that he's a tetrarch. There's all these terms uh, around at the moment, a procurator and all the rest of it. What is a tetrarch? Yeah, all these are technical names that Rome had. Rome was great at having procurators and tetrarchs and governors, and they're pretty technical descriptions. One of the interesting things, by the way, is when we come to Luke's gospel and his story of the early church in Acts, he's pretty good at getting all these names right. To be honest, I confuse them at times. <laughs> they're the rulers. But Luke is really accurate at getting, you know, if there's a tetrarch in a place, he puts that there's a tetrarch rather than a something else. So we just need to see them, I think, for simplicity as the particular 
title that Rome gave in that situation, and and there were slight differences between them. In the case of um, Herod Antipas, though, he was obviously in charge of a particular geographical area that was very much the land in which Jesus lived. And he, like his father, Herod the Great then, was an Idumean, so was sort of a half-Jew. Yes. So that sort of um, grey area is the background to a lot of the things that were going on. Yes, it is. And we find that he is definitely really opposed to Jesus. Again, here's the threat of a king who might take your place. So there are three places in particular where we see Herod Antipas involved. He's the Herod who executed John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 14 and the whole thing about Salome dancing in exchange for give me the head of John the Baptist on a plate. He's the Herod who in Luke 13 uh, actually makes clear that he wants to kill Jesus. And he's the Herod who's involved in Jesus's trials in Luke 23. So when Jesus appears before Herod, you remember he has loads of trials and he's passed between pillar and post Mm. and the high priest and Herod Mm. and Pilate and, and so on. And he's the high priest who comes in there. So, yep, second son of Herod the Great, ruler of Galilee, that area where Jesus grew up, but clearly again, his father's son and opposing the message of John, who was preparing the way for Jesus and the message of Jesus himself and is involved in his trials at the end. What, what, what does the, the Bible text tell us about his character? Uh, well, he clearly sees uh, Jesus as a threat and the message of Jesus as a threat. And those examples that we've just quoted there uh, all show that, that this guy is, is clearly opposed to Jesus. In fact, Jesus calls him at one point Herod the Fox, you know, this sneaky guy who sneaks up like a fox does, uh, but there's malevolence. It might look nice and sweet, you know, though that dear nice fox, uh, but out to cause trouble. So the fair trial that Jesus didn't get was, to a large extent, down to Herod Antipas. Yes, absolutely. Although I think what is made clear in the gospel accounts is that it's like all the different parties come together. It needed all of them to come together. It needed the Jewish leaders. It needed the high priests. It it, it needed the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council. It, it needed the Herod as the local ruler. Eventually, it's going to need Pilate as, as the, the Roman governor. And all of these are brought together. All of them stand against Jesus at the end. Politics is complicated. Um, The third son of Herod the Great was Philip. Philip I, he is the ruler of Trachonitis. Now, Trachonitis was a region to the sort of east-northeast of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, We don't really hear uh, about him, but what we know is that he was the one who rebuilt uh, Caesarea Philippi that comes into the story. He rebuilt Bethsaida on the lake. And uh, unusually, this this Herod was actually pretty well liked by his subjects. Oh. He treated them well, uh, but he doesn't come hugely into our story. And the fourth son doesn't come in either. He's not mentioned 
at all. Aristobulus, he's simply not there. But his son and his grandson do come into the story. So Aristobulus, son number four, he has a son, Herod Agrippa I, who's king of Judea, back to that central area again, 37 to 44 AD. And this is the Herod who's responsible for killing James, for imprisoning Peter, and he will ultimately himself be killed by an angel in Acts 12. And his son, Herod Agrippa II, takes over from him. He's king of Judea from around 50 to 100 AD. He's the Herod that Paul appears before in his trials in Acts 25. So we've got a whole range of Herods there. But I think as we've gone through that sweep, and I know it's a little bit complex, but I hope the thing that stands out is these were not nice people, General. This was not a nice family. They were in power. They were the despots. But they were also incredibly insecure and would do whatever they needed to do to hold on to power. And therefore, they were opposed to this Jesus, as were some of their followers. Sometimes in the New Testament, we we hear about the Herodians Mm. standing against Jesus. And this seems to have been an influential group of Jewish leaders who were supportive of Herod. You know, clearly they were greasing one another's palms and things were working for one another. So the the Herodians were very pro-Rome and therefore naturally they didn't fit with a group like the Pharisees who really saw Rome as just an imposed power and wanted them gone. And yet the Herodians and Pharisees would often come together and ally against Jesus. So this is not a nice bunch of people at all that keeps cropping up at various points, different members of the family. And all I would just say is when people are reading their New Testament, they read about Herod, just check which one it is in this family chain. And if if you've got a Christian basics Bible, there's a a nice little chart that, that sets this out and helps you to understand that. As you sort of reflect on that family and think of the so-called power that they had, so-called authority, and contrast that to Jesus, what comes to mind? Well, Jesus came and, and said he, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And what that strikes me as, you know, real leadership gets down and serves. Real leadership doesn't sit in a throne on high and issue decrees. That's what Herod and all his sons wanted to do and were terrified of losing power. What a contrast to Jesus, who Paul tells us in Philippians 2, did not count equality with God as something to be clung on to, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant and humbling himself even to death on a cross. Now, there's true leadership for you one that does not cling on to position and power, but that readily lets it go to serve others. Contrasting with these Herods that keep appearing, who were desperate to cling on to power, who tried anything they could to get people to love them, and yet were doing the very things that made people hate them more. So an incredible contrast here between the Herods who were desperate for power and would do anything to keep it, including murdering your own wife and sons. 
and the contrast with Jesus in the gospel, whose story interweaves between these Herods, who sees that real power, real leadership, is not about clinging on to it, but letting it go and giving yourself to serve others. And when it, it's when we give ourselves to serve others that God can really use us and bless us. David Tavener was in conversation with Mike Beaumont, who's written about the people of the Bible throughout the Christian Basics Bible. Catch their conversations anytime on the UCB player or with your favorite podcast provider. Just search for Bible Biogs in 30 minutes.